Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Space Makers podcast, celebrating the people behind some of our most beloved artists, athletes, business minds, and entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Kathy Pierre. Hi. Bobito. <laughs> it's so good to what see your face. They go to the T dot. It's so good. When's the last time you've been to Toronto? Uh, man, I, I, it's like I feel like there's, you know, how like, you know, there's AD and BC. <laughs> it's like. Right pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. I haven't traveled in 17 months. And so a lot of my travel in the last 10 years all seems like a blur. It seems like a long time ago. Right. Um, however, I, I do a tournament called Full Court 21. Uh, at, uh, started in 2013. And in 2015, I took it global and mm -hmm. have since have done it in 30 plus international cities. And one of one of them has been that's been steady has been Toronto, but I've also done the uh, qualifiers in Montreal, Vancouver, um, Halifax, and uh, Edmonton. Um, so I've been up to the qualifier in Toronto twice, nice. and the last time I think I was up there was maybe 2017 for it, and uh, it was a ball. It was just so good to to be right there at um, the Harbor Front. Uh, center. center, yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah, nice. right, right on the water. Nice. Actually, I flew into the to the uh, to the island airport, you yeah. know, and then like I just crossed the ferry and like the court was right there. I was like, "Word, all right, cool, let's <laughs> let's ball out. I'm ready," you know. That's I have awesome. my bags. I didn't even go to the hotel. I just went straight to the court. Right. Um, but I got a lot of love for Canada. I got a lot, of, a lot of love for Toronto. I got a lot of love for you, in particular. Wow. Um, so it's always a blessing to talk to you. Well, um, well, let's start there because basketball for you is like a first love, like dances for me. So yeah, talk to me yeah. about how you approach um, working and starting those NGOs and those initiatives and who helped you spearhead those yeah. initiatives. Well, um, I wouldn't, hmm. you know, Full Court 21 in particular, no one had presented it in an organized context. And so a lot of my ideas as an entrepreneur have always been, or as a community, um, um, as a community organ organizer, uh, have, have always been like, there's a void, let me fill it, what's missing? Mm -hmm. And so when I started Full Court 21 2013, it was really like hyper-local um, and giving, empowering uh, the participants to have a place to play where they could get the experience of an authentic New York tournament, uh, but not be locked out the way they would if they went to Rucker Rock, Park or West Fourth, where you got to be part of a team or you got to be six foot nine. But you know, if you're <laughs> five foot nine and you're in town for Toronto and you like want to play pickup, you could do that. But if you want to like play underneath the whistle with an announcer, you know, it's not much you can do. And so I was able to change that by doing full court 21 and. And uh, I saw like all these international players registering, you know, the first two years I did it, 2013, 2014. So then the light bulb went in my head. I was like, well, why don't I extend what I've created here to the rest of the world? And so I partnered with 
a number of local organizers. Will Strickland is my director of operations for Canada uh, and has done a wonderful job. He's based in Toronto, mm-hmm. but he's done a wonderful job of, of creating these qualifiers in, in five cities in Canada since 2015. Um, you know, my, my uh, local organizer in Japan did it in 15 cities in his country wow. back in 2019. Yeah. And so, um, you know, in process, uh, 2019 was our biggest year. We had about 2,000 kids uh, play. Um, mm-hmm. The championship is, is, is in New York. Um, mm-hmm. at Rocksteady Park, which oh, is famous yeah. for hip-hop as well as for basketball. And, and the basketball community is known as the GOAT, named after Earl Manigault, a uh, playground legend. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, Kathy, re- realistically, it was a lot of goodwill, a lot mm-hmm. of uh, tinkering of a concept until it could be created as a blueprint um, for others to uh, uh, u- utilize because some, some of my local organizers, for example, in Hong Kong or in uh, Bamako, Mali, uh, you know, had never done a tournament before. Right. So, like, you know, I'm not just empowering people to, to, to play ball uh, in an organized context that's inclusive globally. I'm also empowering local organizers to be like, oh, wow, like, I didn't really know how to do this. I didn't think I could do this, but here I am bringing people together to play ball um, and with the opportunity to possibly go to New York. So it's really been a beautiful process um, and I'm very proud of it. It was uh, featured on ESPN, um, a a show called uh, Sneaker Center, which uh, I shamelessly uh, (laughs) self-directed. So I was like, yeah, we gotta do a segment on, yeah, yeah. We gotta do a a segment on Full Court 21. Um, But I also had, uh, a scene in my last film, Rock Rubble 45s, mm-hmm. which you were interviewed and a talking, a wonderful I talking was. head for. <laughs> um, I, so I had a scene in, in Rock Rubble 45s about Full Court 21, mm-hmm. uh, which really tied the film all together because in the beginning of the film, you know, you get to learn about my love for my father, mm-hmm. and then you learn about my love and, and my, my passion for basketball, yeah. and then you see me like travel through, you know, different highs and lows. Uh, in my career and then it's like towards the end it's like the last thing that happens in the film is that like I'm back in the in the neighborhood that raised me in the very court that I first played in and I'm doing this tournament for kids you know for adults and it's just like it's not like spelled out yeah it's full circle but it's not spelled out but Mm. if you watch it and you figure it out you like you're like oh shit like he's right he never left yeah he never left you know yeah 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 who did any, did you have any uh, mentors through your basketball years that really helped shape this, especially this journey? Yeah, I, absolutely. I've had multiple ones. Um, and um, I, I give all praise due to my father for first putting a ball in my hands. Uh, my two brothers, um, Ray and Bill, both older than me, who, um, you know, really were embedded in, in New York City playground culture and sort of gave me the lob to like run with it as, you know, because I looked up to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so naturally I, you know, want to um, emulate what they were doing. And then uh, and then I wound up taking it like a lot, a lot of steps further than them because they both stopped playing and I just kept on going, going further and further and further with it. Uh, Earl Manigault is another mentor 
Um, he uh, is a was a playground legend. He passed away in 1997, um, but um, you know he was a fixture in the playground that I grew up uh, mm-hmm. in, and uh, you know made it made it a point to um, really give back to all of us. Uh, he was a fallen angel. Um, he was a heroin addict um, who wound up getting incarcerated and never really fully realized his potential as a ball player. So he uh, created this tournament in the 1970s called Walk Away from Drugs. Um, wow. And uh, he brought it to the GOAT. Um, well, you know, we were calling it the GOAT before it was officially called the GOAT by New York City Parks and Recreation. Um, and, uh, you know, it was influential. It was influential. And when I started my tournament in 2013, I couldn't get the, the permit to have the tournament at the GOAT, but eventually by 2016, I was able to move it there. And since I've, I've held it there, mm-hmm. uh, which has been, you know, again, like full circle, you know, so, um, and I've had a lot of other mentors along the way, but, you know, those are like the early pillars. Yeah. And since then I, I've been able to, you know, play that role for a lot of people globally at the same time, you know? Um, and it's funny, like I look back at when I was, uh, 14 I was in a a summer a basketball summer day camp and uh I wrote out a 10-year projection this is 1981 (laughs) Uh, and one of the things I wrote was that I want to be a community organizer organizer you know 10 years down the road and and I want to like be you know 14 you read you wrote that at 14 Uh. yeah straight up I started coaching basketball when I was 15 Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy how like people have no idea. Like I became a DJ. I became known around Mm -hmm. the world for music. But it's like, you know, basketball, like, as you said, you know, is your primary for, for, you know, you know, dance is your primary, like basketball is my, it's like my primary stepping Mm -hmm. stone Mm -hmm. into this, you know, crazy world that I've been able to create for myself. So, yeah, speaking of that, why DJing? Like, where did your love for music start and why Why DJ? Well, it goes back to my father, you know. Um, and I, you know, I talk about this a lot in uh, my in film, film, Rock Rubble yeah. 45s, which is an autobiographical documentary. Um, I had the idea to write a book, similar to you were telling me <laughs> earlier, you were going to write a book. Yeah. Uh, it's a big undertaking. Um, my first attempt at authoring a book uh, was published. Um, and there was a lot of autobiographical autobiographical material in the narrative mm-hmm. it's titled where'd you get those new york city sneaker culture 1960 1987 yes we will touch um, on that <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's still it's still in uh publication yeah um six six printings later seven printings later i'm proud of that mm-hmm. um but uh you know my father was a latin jazz musician so i was mm-hmm. surrounded by music growing up uh mm-hmm. in the crib and, um, you know, didn't mean that I was going to become a musician, didn't mean that I was going to uh, seek out uh, being involved in music or uh, uh, having a, a foothold in the music industry, which I eventually wound up doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it, uh, it kind of found me, you know, and I made decisions in my life to put myself in a position to symbiotically like mm-hmm. you know walk that path 
Um, I was playing pro ball in Puerto Rico in 1987. And uh, in 1988, after graduating from college, I decided not to go back. I, I made the decision to come back to New York instead, um, not really knowing what was going to come of that. But, you know, I want to work with the Def Jam and then I want to meet and stretch. Mm-hmm. He offered me a position as his radio host on WKCR 89.9 FM. We want to have like, you know, 300 unsigned artists in eight years. You know, some of them went on to become the biggest names and not just rap, but music, period. Jay-Z, Eminem, mm-hmm. you know, Wu-Tang, Nas. Uh, and being at the radio station on a weekly basis and watching Stretch Spin was very impactful. And eventually mm-hmm. I, I sought to do the same. And I did, you know. And doors uh, started opening up because nice. of the radio show. Right. Uh, the radio show's popularity, mm-hmm. you know, once I started playing on a, on a, on a, on a station... It was like my calling card, you know. Right. So I started DJing clubs in New York initially, and then, you know, because I was already known globally, like eventually, promoters started hitting me up, and right. you know, as you know, I'm very reliable. I'm easy to work with. Yes, you um, are. <laughs> very uh, easy people. People listening, he's the easiest to work with. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I like. Uh, I mean, I've produced events and I've managed artists, and I know what know what a pain in the ass that is. So. Yeah. Uh, when I became a creative myself, it was easy to transition. Well, it was never easy for me to transition to being creative. It was always easy to manage myself and create opportunities just based on the fact that, like, I will hit you back if you have an opportunity for me and mm-hmm. I will follow through with it. And if you book me, I will come to your town and crush it. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. I've been on some crush time and time. shit. Time and time and time. Yeah. Time. yeah you know, absolutely. like, yeah. I remember my first gig in in, uh, in Toronto, a uh, dude named Ghani. Um, it was uh, Milk, Milk Studios, something like okay. that. And um, I remember showing, it was like 1997, 98. I don't remember what year it was. <laughs> and uh, I showed it with a bag of 45s. And at the airport, he's like, where's your records? And I'm like, they're in my bag. He's like, where's your bag? And I showed him my bag of 45s. He's like, you're going to DJ with that? I was like, yeah. Because <laughs> like back then, like, yeah. you know, DJs would show up with like three, four flight cases of 12 inches. I was an anomaly to show up with a bag of 45s. For me, it was it was purely um, functional. Yeah. It's like... I'm not strong. I'm not famous. I don't have a, you know, like homeboys carrying. <laughs> yeah, like, you know. And I'm not a DJ that's trying to play what you want to hear. No, you've always been. So a lot of DJs that. would bring records because they were going to have requests or, oh shit, I'm playing reggae and you know, mm-hmm. and they're not feeling it. So I was, I was a kind of cat. I would tell promoters like, yo, don't book me if your crowd is not open minded. If they're open-minded, yo, we're going to have the best time mm-hmm. because I'm going to come in there. I'm going to sing. I'm going to dance. I'm going to set the, I'm going to set the tone. I'm going to set the example. And, um, and you know, that's what drew, drew me to, to DJing too, Kathy, is that, you know, I found myself being able to influence people to open mm-hmm. up to other artists, other genres, other, other music, other rhythms, um, other songs, uh, both new and old that they may not have heard other DJs play, yeah. you know, and I wasn't going to out DJ uh, people technically, 
but I could out DJ other people soulfully and spiritually. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, that's that's where I found my my little piece of the puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk to me at, or tell me more about your intern interning story at Def Jam? Ta! Ta. <laughs> Who opened that door um, for you, man? <laughs> yeah, well, I never interned at Def Jam. It's it's no, actually uh, no, I never did. I I, I started okay. at Def Jam as a messenger. Oh. So and worked your way up. Got it. I worked my way up. Five dollar an hour messenger, um, who kind of volunteered myself as an intern in between errands, which I didn't have to do. I could have came back and just sat on my ass, but right. I was like, "Oh, the legal department needs help with figuring out who sam- who sampled, uh, you know, what what sample this record is." I was like, "Oh, that's James Brown." Like, you know, um. The accounting department needed help, and I had an experience. I had worked in uh, Cooper's Library in an accounting firm, a big eight accounting firm, for three years. Um, so, you know, I would help out the accountant, I would help out the lawyer, I would help out the marketing director, I would help out the promotions, mm-hmm. which, you know, the, the department was very small. So, it was a lot of opportunity to carve out on my own. Um, so, that's all initiative, you know. Um, I would answer, I would answer uh, the, the the, the receptionist would go on lunch and I would like, you need me to answer the door? You need me to answer the phone? She'd be like, yeah, that'd be crazy helpful. You know, so I start writing down messages. You know, I did everything. I did everything I possibly could. I started, I wound up uh, ordering supplies for the closet because you know, nobody was doing it. And I'm going to see the fax paper low and I'm like, yo, I'll order the fax paper. It's all good. Like, you know, so um, it took a lot of initiative Right. And a lot of power moves on my part. And luckily, you know, Carmen Ashurst Watson, who was the president of Def Jam at the time, took quick notice, you know, quick notice. And she was like, yo, like, you're too valuable for us, to us to be on the road, you know, oh. dropping off boxes. Like, you need to be in the office every single day. And that's how I got my job. Started out as a, a um, doing a promotions rep. And then I wound up doing A&R because my ear was so, so much to the street. You know, with the college DJs and the mixtape DJ, mixtape DJs and mm-hmm. the club DJs, and then my own ear, you know, they started giving me demos to listen to, and I would have a log. I would right. write down like, you know, this demo's whack. This demo's whack. Yo, we should listen. We should take it. Uh, we should consider this demo, or we should right. follow up with this artist. See what, what else they have. And um, and then they would start asking me like, Yo, what what record are the DJs around the world feeling off of this album? Yo, this should be the next single. Word? Yeah, hell yeah. This should be the next single. Trust me. Everybody's playing it off the album. Okay, cool. That's going to be the next single. So, you know, I, I, I had a big role in LL's career, his reemergence as an artist. I had a big role in Third Base um, when they, they came out as, as, you know, with their debut album. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Public Enemy, I didn't have to help. Like, they were there. <laughs> they were there. You know, like, yeah. they were there. Um, I had a big role in EPMD uh, and Nice and Smooth. Um, when they left uh, Stephen Mag Records and came to Rush Associated lab- Labels, you know, and, and extending, they were they were there already too. But you know, I feel like what I did at Def Jam extended their their uh, their reach. So, um, but yeah, you know, there's a lot of stories. That's lot of great. Stories. It's just it's important for people to hear that 
you put in the initiative. You didn't sit and wait for somebody to be like, hey, you want to do something? It was like you tapped in quickly. That's... But Kathy? Listen. That's always been the case. Yeah. That's always, always been the case. You know why I started coaching when I was 15? No. Please tell me. Because the director of Central Baptist basketball program was a church, right? Mm -hmm. He saw me at every practice, first person there, last one to leave. Mm -hmm. He saw me knocking on his door like, yo, when can I, can I have access to the gym when nobody's in there? Mm -hmm. He saw me at the basketball camp, you know, doing the drills, you know, first one in the gym, last one to leave, you know, uh, everyone's back in, in the dorm. I'm still, I'm outdoors practicing. Like he saw my passion is so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. that when I was 15, he asked me to, to, to coach the 11 and under uh, squad. Um, and Because uh, you're a great yeah, role I mean, model. He saw the role at, model. At, at 15, yeah. I didn't know that. You know, I, yeah. I, and, and he's another mentor, you know, Pastor Don, um, who I, I rarely mentioned. But, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he saw something in me at an early age. And, you know, so, yes, I've always had initiative. You know, it's like people... You need someone, someone in a position that rec to recognize your passion, and then you know, able to you know be able to facilitate it. But anytime people have given me that, those opportunities, like I said, like I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna crush it. Yeah, I'm not gonna half step. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna crush. Yeah. I, love it. I love it. That's such an important lesson because I feel like a lot of people wait around. Even during this time, people were waiting around for the world to come back. And it's like, yeah, you got to yeah. keep moving. You got to keep moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bob and Weave, you know, I've been lucky yeah. to be creative in my in my freelance career since 93. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's all, I'm coming up on 30 years of, of freelance. Mm -hmm. um, and I've done a lot. I've made a lot of career pivots. And, um, yeah. you know, I've been fortunate to create my own good luck in a lot of instances and a lot of different industries as well. Yeah, absolutely. So after the Stretch and Bob uh, radio show, right? After that radio show finished, what, in 98? Am I right at that? In well, me and Stretch parted ways in 1998, but I, yeah. I continued on WKCR until 2002. I did, I did oh, okay. uh, 12 years of the worst imaginable time slot possible. It was Thursday <laughs> nights from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. You know, when most people in the world are asleep. Yes. Uh, so, but, you know, I somehow made that volunteer 12 years uh, have a lot of uh, longe longevity yeah. and, uh, and connective tissue to a lot of other opportunities. Uh, allow me to mention, I'm, you know, and I'll say this often, you know, this is detailed in a scene in my film, Rock mm -hmm. Rubber 45, which I highly encourage. If anyone's everybody needs to, to watch that yeah, film. If you're listening to this and you're feeling any type of inspiration, you yeah. need to see that film, you know, yeah. like real talk. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah, I um I met uh Rich Medina when he was at Cornell in the early nineties because he was playing ball with a childhood buddy of mine, Mike Parker. Um, and they were teammates and I would go visit uh my homeboy and then you know they were living in the same dorm room and mm -hmm. and uh and rich and i hit it off immediately and uh you know when when we reconnected it was on the spoken word scene actually um initially and then um he had been djing all along i didn't really know him as a dj when he was at cornell 
but by the mid nineties and then towards the late nineties, like he was full fledged, like DJing in Philly and mm-hmm. crushing it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, he, um, like stretch was the one who inspired me, but you know, rich was really the one who was like, yo, like you got all these fucking records in your crib. Like, you know, you got a radio show. Why aren't you spinning? You know? Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, he taught me a couple of things, very fundamental beginner stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was able to run with it, you know? Um, because of your discipline so, too, though, like that takes, yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. You yeah. know? Um, but yeah, so rich stretch, uh, yeah, without the two of them, it's like I, I don't start DJing. It's it's you know I'm I just remain a host, <laughs> right. Um, right? And a good one at that. I I I, yeah. I, I excelled at um, being a radio host and a, an event host, mm-hmm. and um, you know I I I really enjoyed like making people feel comfortable, welcomed, um, pushing people to give their very best performance mm-hmm. um and uh keeping peace uh when things got hairy which happened often in the 90s mm-hmm. um so you know it was, there was a lot of skills involved to be a host in that era mm-hmm. in you know the rough and tumble hip-hop culture and mm-hmm. i survived it thankfully mm-hmm. um but you know that helped me out with, with djing too Nice. So talk to me about Vibe Magazine and that foray into writing for them and interviewing all these legends. Who's uh-huh. your, who opened that door for that opportunity? Well, that opportunity actually comes from the radio show, too. The radio show uh-huh. is really a launching pad for all the artists who came through, but for me and Stretch as well. Right. So Mimi Valdez was me and Stretch's homegirl. I mean, she was really my homegirl. I'm the one who brought up to the station and you know and she and she got she came super cool with stretch and then mm-hmm. it was just like we were all like mutual friends um but uh yeah i mean she used to open the door for, for us when artists would show up she, you know sometimes we answer the phone calls she was just mm-hmm. up there because she was supreme hip-hop head like the rest of us and um and you know she graduated from nyu and then she started working for vibe you know yeah she was the front of the book uh editor and she was the one who approached me about uh, starting a column because she knew that I could make artists feel com- comfortable. She knew they had musical knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then my column, Babito uh, plays the tracks. You know, it was Isaac such Hayes, a good column. Listen, Isaac it was Hayes, such a good column. Oh. Know, states the facts. Um, <laughs> yeah, I interviewed uh, uh, Michael Jordan, Kevin Everybody. Garnett. Uh, Rosie Perez, uh, you know, Simon LeBon, Billy Idol, Tony Bennett. Uh, all the legends. The yeah, all I mean, legends, you know, like, forget about it. Like <laughs> some really big names. Isaac yeah. Hayes, Bill Sky Heron, yeah. Rosie Perez, yeah. uh, Q-Tip, uh, you know, Crazy Legs, uh, Stretch. How long? How long were you um, at five for? I did that. I did that gig for ten years. Yeah. 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 And then it ran its course. You know, I moved on yeah. from it. But uh, it was fun. It was fun while it lasted. It was you know? a great column. I Vibe will always be one of my favorite favorite industry magazines. And your column was, 
I remember when discovered we were friends before I discovered that you did the column. <laughs> like it didn't, <laughs> it didn't connect for me. And then I remember when it Word. connected, and I was oh, like, "Wait, funny. what?" <laughs> yeah. That was a great. Yo, you want to hear something funny? There was a, a TV show in Canada called Vibe. You remember it? Um, it was on music. Much music. Uh, much, much yeah. music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a uh, a woman who was the host, and she she asked me to DJ on the show one day as a guest and uh and yeah and then like she just talked to me about my buy magazine column <laughs> and uh because we had a lot of readers in canada yeah and you know what we had a lot of readers in south africa and that's one of the reasons why i got booked and i became the first u.s hip-hop dj to ever perform in post-apartheid south africa and and uh in 2000 um that's that story is detailed in my film rock over 45 as well but you know, I'm thankful to Vibe. Vibe, Vibe yeah. was huge in Japan too. Vibe helped me extend my my brand in yeah. multiple countries throughout the world. You know, it's kind of cool. It was it was a good brand. It's still uh, a good brand. It's a good yeah, brand. Thank you. Um, thank you. All right, I have. What are you, you going to ask me? What are you gonna ask me about Mia Shucks' album? <laughs> Hold on, it's coming. It's coming. I'm waiting wait for it. It's coming. It's coming. Um, so. Listen, your your passion for sneakers is unmatched. Like I've met a lot of sneakerheads. Yours, it's unmatched. Um, so nah, I, wanna, I, I wouldn't say that. I, really? I, I, I would because I feel yeah, like it's... I, I, I would deny that. <laughs> I, I'm a historian. Yeah, you know, I'm an author. I'm someone who has uh, designed and collaborated with a number of brands: Procads, yeah, Viola, like... Puma. Yeah. um nike, nike adidas yeah. k1x um there's uh early discussion now of me collabing with uh, a german brand called a few goods okay. um they're, they're like they just they just launched their first model uh this month and it sold out immediately but they're a tiny they're the sneaker shop and now mm -hmm. they're, they're they're uh manufacturing sneakers which i think mm -hmm. is a great move for them because they're really sincere about it but um but also makes I, I play a lot of roles you know, in the sneaker space, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm as passionate about it as I was, you know, 30 years ago. Okay. Um, I don't eat, sleep, drink, you know, <laughs> shit sneakers anymore. <laughs> um, but you I, did. I mean, I, I, That's why you can I write did. your book. I, I did. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wrote a book about it. Yeah. Know? I mean. But, but the first, the first line in my book is, "I am a reformed sneaker addict." <laughs> it the is. First line. It, you're, right. So, you're right. I learned it. so much from reading that book because I don't. Oh, thank you. Yeah, because it was one of those books that I, I just I didn't understand the depth um, of the culture, right? It I, because I was removed from it in in a certain way. Um, yeah, I I just didn't understand it, and so it, there's and for y'all, it's called "Where Did You Get Those?" By the way, it's about sneaker culture. It's not. It's not. Where did you get those? It's called "Where." You get those. Wait, there we go. Apostrophe stand, stand corrected. <laughs> New, York, New York City sneaker culture, yeah. 1960, 1987. But, you know, Kathy, um, uh, truthfully, you, you could have been in the thick of sneaker culture for your generation and still missed what happened in the 60s and 70s because you weren't alive. Correct. You know, um, so when I wrote the book, one of my, my goals was to document this beautiful and timeless period that sort of predates but also completely informs mm -hmm. and lays the foundation for what becomes the modern day sneaker movement, um, which a lot of people 
I, I, you know, I was I, I was like infuriated 20 years ago. I was reading all these mainstream articles, and they were like, "Oh, this new sneaker craze is like nah, dude, like it's mm -hmm. not new. Mm -hmm. You're just not up on it. Like, so mm -hmm. let me write this book, and then you can, you know, knowledge the fact that there's particularly people of color with a lack of resources, similar to what happened in hip hop, that created this beast that everyone is profiting off of, you know? Correct. Um, so Correct. I, wanted, I wanted the record to be straight. Yeah, and when you decided to write that book, did you have um, a publisher or did someone come to you and say, hey, we love this book. How did that process go about? Because that's not yeah, easy. Um, writing a book's not an easy process. No, it's not. It I mean, yeah, going back to mentor mentorships, right? Yeah. So, um, I wrote an article for the Source magazine that was published in May of 1991. Mm -hmm. Turned out it was the first article on sneaker culture in media history, right? It was titled "Confessions of a Sneaker Addict." So that's why in the first line of my book, which came out in 2003, like 13 years later, essentially, you know, mm -hmm. I am a reformed sneaker addict, right? Mm -hmm. There was, there was a, a departure from how I felt at, as a 25 year old uh, in 1991. Mm -hmm. um, but because I wrote that book, and I had op also opened up the world's first, you know, quote unquote, modern era sneaker boutique mm -hmm. in 1996, it was called Bobito's Footwork. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, Dana Alberella, who became the publisher of Testify, met me at my store, bought sneakers from me, knew about the Source Magazine article, knew about my sort of like, kind of like legendary status already in the 90s for customizing sneakers and mm -hmm. having joints that, you know, just having the respect of everybody in the downtown uh, hip hop and club scene. Um, you know, she was the one who really came up with the idea that I should write a sneaker book. It wasn't on my radar to do one, mm. you know, because I was like, who's going to read a book about sneakers? You know, mm. I knew the article could rock. Um, and resonated. But I didn't. Yeah. yeah and it resonated yeah. for sure. Yeah. For years after. But yeah, I didn't know that that there could be a book about it. It didn't exist. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, in 2000, she she uh, contracted me to write. It took me like three, four years to write, and it came out in 2003. Yeah. It took a lot of work, a lot of research. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, got to interview all my best friends from my childhood who were sneakerheads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, along with me. And, you know, the book is approaching its 20th anniversary. It's crazy, you know. That is still crazy. in print. I feel like I was just at the reading of like the Brooklyn Library. When you were there like, I feel like that was just yesterday. Wow. 20 yeah, years, yeah, 20 yeah, years. yeah. Brooklyn Library. I remember that. I remember that reading. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, the book has been used in uh, higher education, Carnegie mm -hmm. Mellon, Johnson C. Smith University. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a number of it's been like the main text for some college courses. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's informed, you know, curators at museums and, yeah. you know, it's crazy, so. It took on a life of its own, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I have, you've done so much. It's like, 
your career, I remember watching the documentary and, and this is why I'm bringing it up because I've known you for, I don't know, 15 plus years at this point. No, and you've I've known learned, me for 20 years. You've known, known me for 20, 20 years. Don't age me, B. It's 2021. <laughs> you met me in 2001. You did. Own it. Owning it. it, owning it. It's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing, Kathy. <laughs> no, it is. It truly. Yeah. I've known you for twenty years, and that's dear to me. I, I cherish it. I cherish yeah. it. But I learned and we so support much. E and we support each other. I love you too. You know, I yeah. went to Madison Square Garden and saw yeah. Cirque du Soleil, and was like, oh, yeah, you snap! You know, <laughs> yeah. have, you know, I've seen, I've seen you dance at other parties, not my own, and I've danced yeah. with you, and you danced with me at my parties, and you know, yeah. ah, you're, you're fam, you're fam. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But I learned so much about you from your documentary. It was it was it was open hearted and it was transparent. It was beautiful. Thank you. Um, but I know that was not your first documentary because you'd had another one prior to that. So what started out? I had I had two, two. documentaries. <laughs> two. Um, yeah. What started the journey on the the doc films? Like what? Where did that come from? And who and, and how yeah um yes yeah so i'm gonna uh answer this question but we're not gonna get out of here without you talking about stretch puppy i uh, know we're not I we're mean, not um, go, go, go. um <laughs> m19s man because i remember your, your beautiful and gushy email about when you first listened to the album yeah. but we'll get back to that anyway yeah. uh i um have appeared in probably over 50 documentaries over the years mm -hmm. you know some of them have been short films some of them have been feature length some of them never got released some of them were in denmark and scandinavia only and i can't keep track you know yeah. Yeah. um some of them have been huge like hip-hop evolution on mm -hmm. netflix which uh one of the interviews i did was in toronto when i was up there for full court 21. Right. um so uh You know, I was, I, I'm, I'm constantly trying to challenge myself as a freelance creative. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, going back to the fill the void, uh, each of my films really uh, approached topics that just weren't ever going to be made into a film, I felt. You know, pick up basketball, everybody plays it around the world. You know, it's top three sports, you know, I don't know, swimming, soccer, and then basketball. Mm -hmm. Maybe not in that order. I don't know, you know. Um, how could someone, how come someone not have thought to do a, a documentary about pickup, you know, particularly in New York, the Mecca. Yeah. So it was really, that was the premise. Um, I didn't know how to make a doc, right. but I surrounded myself with, with phenomenal, uh, teammates and, um, and was able to write, produce and direct my first film. Um, and then, you know, that being like sort of my uh filmmaking 101 <laughs> right you know and then moving on to the second film stretching babito mm -hmm. radio that changed lives which uh got picked up by showtime and then eventually mm -hmm. netflix and um and then my last film rock Rubber 45s i felt was my best film yet because i like i had two films that i'd made mm -hmm. it's like oh okay cool i i'm, I'm rock Rubber 45s there were scenes that i edited myself yeah. you know um, I wasn't the editor, but, you know, I edited certain scenes and um, and I assisted the editor uh, and I sat with him, you know, every single day almost, mm -hmm. you know, piecing that film together. So I'm really proud of my last film. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's unfortunate that it's, it's of the three, it's probably the one that's been least viewed. Mm. <laughs> you know, but I feel like it's it's a it's a testimony to um, the soul of a human, and um, you know, it'll find its audience in the long term because people will, will continue to talk about it and the word of mouth will spread it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. All right. So, so we gotta get, wait, I'm obsessed. So you, people you, need to you know. Say, you say the best for the last. I did. Of course I did. <laughs> so I, I'm obsessed, obsessed with the Stretch and Bobito, the M19 band album. If you don't have it, you should have it. It should be on every available music. <laughs> Where you play your music, you should be listening to it because it's yeah, great. Yeah. Did you, and I'm so you know, I know you've produced before, but what, like, why now? Why the album? Who was involved? That's a great question. That, yeah, that helped you spear that. Yep. So the title of the album is No Requests. We subsequently released um, a single titled Que Bonita Bandera, which means my beautiful flag, uh, in December of 2020, and that was for the uh, 125th anniversary of the of the formation of the Puerto Rican flag. Mm -hmm. So 2020 was was huge for us. We started the year in January releasing the album mm -hmm. and our singles featuring Maimouni Youssef, uh, for, um, I Know You, I Live You, uh, and Grammy nominated, but mind you, Maimouni Youssef, uh, vocalist. And then uh, our other single was The Mexican with uh, Latin Grammy Award winner Mireya Ramos. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then so we bookend the year, you know, with the album and then the single at the end. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately, the pandemic hit. So, you know, some of the rock forty fives. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know that um, our album No Requests is on the radar of the amount of people who would clearly love it if they heard it. You know, mm -hmm. clearly because I've DJ parties and played joints off of the album and seeing people on the dance will lose their shit. You know, like, oh, they should. Like, yeah. What the fuck is this shit? You know? Yeah. Um, how I became a producer was uh, truthfully Rock Rubble 45s, you know, since, because I was the writer, director, producer, uh, music supervisor, mm -hmm. you know, like co-editor. You know, I mean, I had so many hats. And I was like, oh shit, we need a title track for the film. I should produce it. You know, here's my, here's my goal with an opportunity. No mm -hmm. one can say shit to me. It's my film. It's a film about me. Mm -hmm. I don't have to, you know, get approval from anybody. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, mm -hmm. so um, luckily, you know, I'm friends with Robert Glasper and friends with Eddie Pamieri, you know. Uh, Just friends. Between, yeah, between them, <laughs> that's 13 Grammy Awards and, you know, yeah. both le legends already. Already, I mean, Eddie's, well, Eddie's, Eddie's been, been a legend. Been a legend. <laughs> 1950s, but yeah. Robert, you know, he's already a jazz legend. Yeah. It's just, it's just what it is, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and he's a great dude, you know. So I reached out to him and literally heard back within five minutes. Now, luckily, I already gotten Eddie Palmieri involved, so it was like, you know, it's like. Uh, Carmelo Anthony coming to the Lakers, it's like they already got LeBron. Yeah, so you gotta twist another player's arm to be like, you do you want to play with LeBron? You know, <laughs> right. it's like asking Glassberg if you want to be on a track with Eddie Palmieri. It's like, like what? Come on, 
Now, what I didn't know was that Glassman loves Latin music and, and could play it too. Mm. Um, so uh, I also collaborated with uh, two songwriters, um, uh, Jay, Jay, uh, Jay Zone mm -hmm. and his partner in the group called the Do Rights. Um, I'll space on his, his partner's name. Um, anyway, so I, I, I kind of like spelled out what I wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, they wrote it in, in notes mm -hmm. and chords. Um, they created like a demo form of it. And then, you know, we went around and, and added Mireya Ramos uh, on the violin and, and Rob Swift to do uh, scratches mm -hmm. uh, on the chorus. You know, he was, you know, DJ for Lincoln Park at one point and he was in the Executioners. And, um, you know, so I had like an all-star cast, that, you know, top to bottom, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were blessed. You had your tribe and they all came. Uh, and then they did and masked and master it yeah exactly everybody was like yo come on yeah. but again like it's like all oh, it goes back to eddie Palmieri. it's like you know he's involved how are you gonna turn it down <laughs> so um after that record came out um uh eddie Palmieri's label uprising nyc who's which is run by zorlo torres hit me up he was like yo like you can produce you clearly can get amazing performances out of artists Mm -hmm. You know, you clearly have a, a vision of how you can blend Latin with funk, jazz, soul, mm -hmm. and other 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 rhythms. Um, why don't you produce an album? And I was like, yeah, let me do it with Stretch. Now, luckily, Zorlo used to take me and Stretch his radio show. Back in the nineties. So he was like, Hell yeah. Another full no circle. More. Yeah. So I was like, Time out. Let me call up Stretch. Stretch, you want to produce an album with me? Come on. For Eddie Palmetti's label. What? You know? <laughs> and, and that was and from there, it's like, you know, yeah. yeah, we we pulled together the best Latin jazz musicians in the city and and loosened them up to play funk and Afrobeat and That's samba. So it's and so you know music that they wouldn't normally play in the Latin mm -hmm. jazz space, yeah. And uh, yeah, and, and uh, we came up with the album, you know. Mm -hmm. So look out for more music from me and Stretch. Um, me and Stretch also uh, host, produce, and DJ a biweekly radio show on Apple Music Hits called Stretch and Bobito Radio, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it can be listened to on demand if you miss it on Saturdays at eight o'clock Eastern. But Kathy, I love you. I'm feeling I lightheaded. You. I got to cook my son. <laughs> Can I ask you uh, one last question before you go? Be a, for an hour. I know. Hour. One last question before you go and be a fantastic yeah. father. Who are you making? Okay. So the podcast is called Space Makers, as you know. So okay. who are you making space for now in your life? And then I'll let you go. Uh, I, first of all, shout out to Space Makers. <laughs> My name is Bobby DeGarcy, a.k.a. Cool Bob Blah. You are now listening to Space Makers, Space Makers, Space Makers. My name is Bobby DeGosti, a.k.a. Cool Bob Love. Space Makers. All right, now you got the promo. <laughs> I adore you. It's done. Um, I'm, I'm currently making space for myself. And, you know, I have a child. Um, I have a a lot of responsibilities with him um, and um, 
I, I, uh, you know, make it a point to write in my journal some mornings or mm. make it a point to uh, go outside and play ball because mm. that's what brings me joy. Um, you know, make it a point to play music after he's asleep, you know, um, and just try to find those moments for self, you know, because when you're a parent, especially at a, at a, you know, at his development age where he needs a lot of attention and a lot of uh, care and, you know, um, yeah, it's like you lose yourself, you know, you lose yourself. And, and I, uh, I can't parent well if I'm not happy. Yes. I'll be a better parent if, if I'm gratified with my own life, you know, yes. so I make it a point to, you know, keep myself in check and, and having space for that. Um, and I've also made space for afterlife too. Um, this year has been a, a tough one. I've lost, uh, I think 35 people at this point in the last 16 months. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a staggering number. Right. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, I, I've really like in my daily affirmations, I've, I've made it a point to be like, I'm grateful for life and I'm grateful for afterlife. Um, because I don't have to look at, at, at someone passing on as a loss. I can think of it as that's the natural progression of life. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have to think like when people think, you know, loss generally it's like, it's like, Oh, you lost the game. Mm -hmm. Oh, you lost your keys. Oh, you lost your mind. Mm -hmm. Oh, you lost your friend. You know, it's generally like a negative connotation. So really try to come out of, uh, even though I might even said that a second ago. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, essentially it's like, I'm trying to like really, uh, make space to to think positive, you know, and and uh, you know it takes work. It takes work. It does. So. Bob, space thank you so. Space <laughs> Cappy Pierre. Oh, oh, cap, 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 Bobito Garcia, I love, I love you. you so much. If I saw you in real person, I'll give you a big hug right now. I know. Right. And I'll see I will see we will see each other soon. Thank you so much. We will. For your time. We will. All right. Travel safe, okay? You All too. Right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into the Spacemakers podcast. And remember, there's no such thing as self-made. No matter the story, there's always that one integral character who leveraged their success, luck, confidence, and positivity to create opportunities for folks coming up in their shadow. We call these special souls the Space Makers. I'm your host, Kathy Pierre. This podcast was produced by Shannon McDees.